Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. So how is he his son? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is wisdom in your word. Wisdom that outshines the wisdom of men and that points in every direction to you. That this is not the word merely of man, but a word that comes ultimately from the very mouth of God. Inspired and errant and for our good. Help this word to drive us to Jesus this morning, we pray. Amen. Three questions we've heard our Savior asked as we've neared the end of chapter 20 of the Gospel of Luke. And I just want to dive right in this morning to the kind of context that we've been seeing because it'll make sense of what's happening in this passage. Three questions. In fact, we've seen Jesus in the hot seat, haven't we? Um, You could almost feel the pressure being brought against him by the religious leaders. Um, As Jesus has made his way to Jerusalem, taken his post at the temple, and started teaching the word of God. And what's the first thing that happens? Well, the religious leaders say, who gave you the authority? And then they fire off a second question. Hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then a third question designed to trip up our Savior Is the resurrection real or is it ridiculous? And those three questions we've seen are not just innocent questions. They are designed to trip up our Savior. And in fact, they are like three strikes of the serpent Satan against Jesus, trying to trip him up on his way to fulfill his role of suffering and dying and rising again. And just like Jesus did in the wilderness way back in the beginning of, uh, of the Gospel of Luke when three strikes of the serpent against Jesus could not take him down. Once again, Jesus steps out of the way of each of these three questions, each of these three loaded questions designed to trip him up. And then we see something extremely interesting happen in this passage because here's the Pharisees and the scribes scratching their heads thinking, is this guy invulnerable can we is there any way to stop him there they are scratching their heads puzzled as to why he didn't crack under pressure and guess what happens jesus says it's your turn to be in the hot seat and the questioner or or the, the one who is questioned becomes the questioner the examined becomes the examiner and here's jesus who steps up to the plate, 
and says, let me take a whack at this. Let me give you a riddle, a question of the day. And what we need to see is Jesus's question isn't like the silly questions that they've concocted. Jesus's question isn't about paying taxes or, you know, uh, who's going to be married to whom in the resurrection. Jesus's question is the question that really matters because it actually gets to the heart of what we need to ask ourselves today. Who is Jesus? Jesus has formed a question from the scriptures that can only lead to one place, and it's this. It's a question, who am I? He forms it in a riddle of sorts. We're going to see this morning uh, this riddle. We're going to encounter the riddle, and then second, we're going to unravel the riddle. We're going to encounter the riddle. We're going to unravel the riddle. And it's a riddle You'll notice as we begin to encounter it that comes straight out of the scriptures, straight out of Psalm 110. You heard it read this morning. A Psalm of David that isn't just part of, you know, the, the, uh, the header that someone tacked on at some point. If you read commentators, uh, some critical scholars would want you to think that that's exactly what it is. You know, you can pick and choose whether it's written by David or not. Jesus says, no, it's actually very important that this psalm is written to, by David. And that's actually uh, crucial to his riddle. It's a psalm of David. We read that at the very beginning of Psalm 110. And it's a psalm that is all about David and about David's son. And about David's Lord. The first part of the riddle leads us to consider David's son. Now, David was an extremely important person in the scriptures. And you know this, right? He was important because he was a great king of Israel. He was the king that everyone looked to and said, ah, those were the good old days when David was king. Those were the good old days when he brought all of God's enemies to their feet. If only we could have a king like him again. And good news, the scripture says that's exactly what God is planning. That's exactly what he promised. And so what did God promise about David? God promised that there would come forth from David a descendant, a Messiah. And he would actually be bone and bone and flesh of flesh of David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 says this. This is a key passage that talks about David's son. 2 Samuel 7, 12. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. You hear that? That's what we hear, in fact, written all over the Old Testament. You can't miss it. David is dead. He's been gathered to his fathers in the presence of the Lord. He can't be the Messiah. But good news, David has children. And along that long line of children, there's one coming, says the Old Testament, who will stand up and he will do what David was tasked with doing. He will bring lasting peace, great peace to God's people. Psalm 10, 110 is talking all about that coming son of David. 
Did you catch that? This is a psalm that is, you could say, messianic to the core. It's all about the Messiah. It's all about the kind of promises that God is speaking to that Messiah. what What did God say? God said, I'm going to put you at my right hand of power. I'm going to crush uh, the, the Israel's enemies underneath your feet. I'm going to bring victory and lasting peace over sin and death through you. And when the scribes were to hear Jesus talking about David's son, you know, Jesus says, hey, is it true that the Messiah is going to be David's son? And they said, of course, of course he is. That's written all over the Bible. We're waiting for him. Could you be him, Jesus? But then Jesus shows us something else about David's son that really brings the the tension of the riddle into focus, and it's this. If the Messiah is David's descendant, then what's the deal with verse 1 of Psalm 110? David says, The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand. Are you starting to feel the tension? The tension of the day? Literally in the the Hebrew, you've got two names of of power here. And both of those names are translated Lord. So you've got the Lord said to my Lord. If you were to hear the Hebrew text, it would say Yahweh. That covenant name, that sacred name of God. Yahweh said to my Adonai. That name Adonai is another name that's frequently used for God, can also be used for human rulers. But you, you have this, these two names of weightiness and importance. My Yahweh, or Yahweh said to my Adonai, sit at my right hand. And Jesus says, hang on. Linger on those words about the Messiah a little bit longer. Jesus says, have those words ever tripped you up as you've read them? As you've lingered on those words, have they ever made you feel a little uncomfortable? Because here's the deal. No son would ever be called Lord by his father. If the Messiah, if this descendant of David is David's son, then how could David call him my Lord, my Adonai? How is that possible? No son would ever call his father Lord. That would be backwards, right? But then you can also think about this. What kind of king, the greatest king of Israel, would ever call one of his descendants Lord and pay him homage and pay him honor and call him Lord and kneel before him? Who would do that? How can this be that the Messiah can be both David's son, his heir to the throne, and also his Lord who commands his obedience, same obedience that he owes to God? How is that possible? Well, this isn't the first time that we've seen this not in Scripture. Jesus is pointing us to one particular place uh, that was extremely well known. But let's look at one other. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11 if you have your Bibles or you could listen. Isaiah chapter 11 says this. Look at verse 1. Another promise of the Messiah, famous. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, Jesse is David's father. 
And so what we have here is this clear um, picture, right? There's, there's a Messiah coming and he's going to be like a branch that forms off of that line from David, right? So think about this. Um, you've worked before with genealogies, you know, a family tree, right? You see the branches shooting off different places in the family tree. And God is saying, look, David's going to have, Jesse has a son. His name's David from that lineage is going to come the Messiah. Follow the family tree. You'll end up with the Messiah somewhere down there. It's good news. Keep waiting on him. But then look at verse 10. We see something else about this stump of uh, this root, this shoot from Jesse. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the people. Okay, are you starting to feel the tension again? We just heard in verse one, there's going to come one who's going to be a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. But here we, we hear that that same shoot is also the root of Jesse. How can one, how can the root also be the shoot? You know, you think about that from, I know it's kind of rhyming. You think about this from the perspective of of a a tree that grows up, right? How can the, the sprig that comes off of a tree in the spring, a fresh sprig, also be the root that formed that tree and gave it life? Go back to the family tree, the genealogy. How can, you know, one of those um, descendants that branches off in that long line of ancestry also be the one who began that family tree in the very beginning? How is that possible? And so you, you see this conundrum, this paradox in the Bible throughout the Old Testament talking about the Messiah. Both root and shoot, both son and Lord. And so Jesus just lays this thick on his questioners. And suddenly he is the questioner and they are in the hot seat. And do you notice how just at the end of this passage, the question just rings? I love that. I love how the question just kind of jumps off the page. And you can almost feel Jesus's opponents sweating it out. They don't have an answer. They don't know how to resolve this. I think here's what Jesus is doing with this question. He's exposing a problem. They don't have a big enough Messiah. They're not dreaming big enough when it comes to the Messiah, the promised one. Because here's the thing about Jesus' opponents, Sadducees, Pharisees alike. They love the parts of the Bible that talk about the Messiah being David's son. Why do they love that? Because it's manageable. Because it's easy to control. Because it leaves them with an easily manipulated Messiah. Here's what they can, here's what they can say with a Messiah who's, who is merely a descendant of David. Here's what they can say. Okay, as soon as that guy shows up, we'll put him in the throne. And we'll have an influence over his power. He'll do what we want. He'll bring peace to the nations. He'll, he'll bring his rod of wrath against Rome. This is going to be awesome. He's exactly what we want, a political ruler, a ruler who basically does exactly what we want him to do. You see how that works? But then when they're faced with these other passages that that talk about David's Lord. Now, that's not comfy. That's out of their control. And suddenly they're dealing with a Messiah that is so powerful, so big, looming over them. 
that they don't know what to do with him. And so what did they do? Well, they kind of just breeze past these passages that talk about the Messiah being the Lord of David. The other day, I watched my son Frazier playing games in his playroom, and he has this one game where he takes a, a, a big blue ball and he tries to shove it into a box. And he usually can't do it because the ball is too big for the box. He comes up, he just like tries to push it down, tries to push it, ends up wheeling it all over the house, can't get the ball in the box. So there's two ways that I can help him resolve this. One way is I give him a smaller ball. Here, here you go, Frazier. And he throws it into the box and claps his hands. The other way is I haul out a bigger box. Suddenly he can get that ball into the box. I think what we're seeing here is something actually like this. The Pharisees don't have a big enough box to fit what all the scriptures say about the Messiah. They're taking, they have this ball that, that this, uh, all the things that the scripture offer and they can't get it in. So what do they do? They turn and they get a smaller ball, a smaller Messiah, a more manageable Messiah. They can just tuck into their little box. But scripture is saying, no, you need to enlarge your concept of who the promised one's going to be. And that's what Jesus does. And that's what he does for them. And that's what he does for us. You know, friends, we don't need a smaller Messiah. We need a more full understanding of who that Messiah is and his person and his work. That's really important. And that's what Jesus actually does for us as he begins to unravel the riddle. Now notice, there is no solution to the riddle in our text. Jesus just leaves it hanging. If that made you feel uncomfortable, any of you just feel a little bit like, oh, wait, wait, come on, Jesus, go ahead and tell them the answer. How can you resolve this problem? You know, I felt that way a little bit too, but I also thought this is genius. This is the wisdom of God in the scriptures. What God is going to do is he's going to let the rest of the New Testament widen that box and show us how what everything the Old Testament says actually fits right in. He's going to make us wait to see what Jesus is going to do on the cross, what he's going to do in the empty tomb. And then it's no surprise that this passage, Psalm 110, Psalm 110 becomes the most quoted passage in the New Testament. 33 times referenced. Or quoted. That's more than any other Old Testament passage in the Bible. And I think there's a reason for that. For, for uh, the apostles and the first Christians who were writing the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was a passage that explained the greatness of Jesus. The greatness of the Messiah. For the, those uh, great theologians in the early church. Gregory of Nazianzus, Augustine of Hippo. They, they grabbed a hold of Psalm 110 and they said, okay, here we have a passage that gives us the fullness of the greatness of the Messiah. Because guess what? Guess what the early church saw? Guess what we need to see? Jesus is the answer to this riddle. He solves the conundrum. Because Jesus, the one, the one asking the question, he's the son of David. Born of Mary, 
truly man. Go back to Luke chapter 1 and you'll see that family tree listed. You know, he is the root or, um, uh, sorry, he is the shoot coming forth from that genealogy of Jesse. You, you go back there, you'll notice Jesus bloodline through Mary as fully man comes through this ancestry, through David. And so there's no mistaking, Jesus fits within that part of the family tree, that part of the puzzle. Born of Mary, truly man. But what about this? Could this one also be the shoot of Jesse? Or the root, could the shoot also be the root of Jesse? Could he be not only David's son, but also David's Lord? And the answer we see over and over and over again is Yes, yes, because the one who came through David's line is also the one who raised himself up in power from the dead, who rules at God's right hand, who commands David, who commands us. The son of David is also the Lord of David. This is good news because it means that we have a savior who is fit to save us from our deepest problems and rule over our greatest enemies. Because Jesus is the son of David, what can he do? He can truly come flesh and blood and on our behalf, lay down his life. He can die for sinners like you and I. He can offer up a sacrifice for our greatest problem, our sin. Our greatest problem isn't a political issue, it's sin. But because he's the, David's Lord, because he is more than a mere mortal, and truly God himself, that sacrifice for sin can truly cover all the sins of anyone who call upon his name. It is a sacrifice of infinite value. And because he is no mere mortal, but the Lord of David, he can raise himself up in power, ascend to the right hand of the Father, and bring that judgment against enemies that only God in his sovereign power can bring. Do you see the beauty of how the puzzle starts to be pieced together? David's son, David's Lord. Listen to a few passages that show that the son of David is also the Lord of David. The one who is fully man is also fully God. Romans chapter one. Paul says that he was set apart to preach the gospel concerning God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation chapter 22. We hear Jesus speaking of himself. And he says this. In verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. 
Is this the Jesus that you confess? You know, maybe you're here this morning or you're hearing this sermon. You say, you know, this Jesus, he must be a good man. All the, all the things he said. He must be a really good man. The fairest flower of humanity. And that's true. But that box isn't near big enough to fit all the things that are true about the Messiah about Jesus in the scriptures. Maybe you say, okay, he's more than that. He's a great prophet. I love Jesus. He's, he's wonderful. He's, he brought the word of God. He's a great prophet. Again, that is so very true. You're on the right path, but that is incomplete. You can't fit all that the scriptures say about Jesus into that box. You say, well, he's my savior. He died for my sins. And that's so true. But there's more. How about this? He is the son of God, the savior and Lord of all. Sitting at God's right hand. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. That is the Jesus presented in the scriptures. And that is the Jesus that you are called in this passage, to embrace. You see, as this question rings through the air, it's really a question that is meant to grab us, jump off the pages of the scriptures and hit you right where you're sitting right now and ask you, is this the Jesus that you embrace? Do you know him? Do you love him? Because this one, the only one who is able to save you from your deepest problems, he's not just David's Lord. He's your Lord. Can you say, oh, this one is my Lord. If you can say that with David, then on that last day, you have the hope that he will come and you will not be one of his enemies, but his friend whom he will greet and say, reign with me, join me. You have this opportunity this morning to confess with David. Jesus, you are my Adonai. You are my Lord. Will you confess that even now? Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for all the wisdom of the scriptures and how even the greatest riddles find their answer in Jesus. Some riddles we will not have an answer to until that final day, but this one you have found fit to reveal to us that the the same one who descended from David is also the one who created David. David's son is also his Lord. Jesus, help us to not be like the Pharisees who, and, and the, the scribes and the Sadducees who heard these words and who walked away and who crucified the Lord. But help us to hear these words and to crown him Lord of all. He is Lord. Help us to recognize that and to live that out in our lives as we fight against sin day after day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.